Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer and set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Coming up on this week's show, at the time Microsoft tried to buy Nintendo. A lost game from 30 years ago is coming to the Switch. And we get the inside story of Sega and the Dreamcast from Master Botany. The Retro Hour podcast is brought to you each week with our good friends at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out Game Boy, the box art collection. From Batman to Bomberman, Zelda to Zoop, the Game Boy boasted every type of genre. You can remind yourself on the games that you owned and discover some that you've never heard of in Game Boy, the box art collection. Get it right now and the rest of their retro gaming books at bitmapbooks.co.uk. And with our friends at PCBWay, who offer a fully featured custom PCB prototype service with low-cost, fast turnaround quality boards. They also do 3D printing and injection moulding and lots more. And they're big supporters of the retro community. Get an instant quote right now at PCBWay.com. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 304. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to our first show of December. I think it's about time we said it, guys. Merry Christmas. It's too early. It's too, too early, It's always one. It's always one. I'm really excited for Christmas this year. I'm really, really, really excited for it. So... Merry Christmas, Ravi. Merry Christmas, uh, Dan. <laughs> Bar humbug. <laughs> well, actually, we are going to be getting very festive in a couple of weeks' time. Not only have we got the annual Retro Hour Christmas Super Quiz episode on the way that we're going to be recording um, weekend after next, so I've got about 100 questions to do before then, and then we're going to be having a, uh, a virtual Retro Hour Christmas party the weekend after. Oh, it should be good. I don't know if we're going to have a virtual photocopier. <laughs> See what happens. <laughs> I was about to say some yeah. digital mince pies, but uh, Ravi took it a little bit more saucy. Well, this is, uh, we do our patrons hang out every month. Uh, and if you're not familiar with what that is, this is like a virtual users group where all our patrons get together. We do it once a month on a Sunday night. We all just have a drink and definitely it's going to be, you know, alcoholic drinks for the Christmas party, you know, just saying. And NAF Christmas jumpers compulsory. But also, we all just get together and nerd out about all things vintage, all things retro. You know, it can be like, you know, obsolete media we talk about, our first mobile phones we were chatting about last time as well. Obviously, a lot of um, old video game and movie chat normally, old music we talk about too. So this time, we're going to have a bit of a Christmas theme on it. It's going to be uh, the weekend before Christmas, um, Sunday the 19th of December, if you want to join us for it. And actually, wouldn't it be amazing? I think our record was about 35 people. I think it'd be amazing if we could top that this time. Oh, it'd be good. It's like the Brady Bunch, you know, you get everybody on the kind of scream on a Google meetups. And yeah, it's it's kind of unlimited number. So uh, we can go as big as possible. Really good fun. Yeah. So um, if you want to find out more about that, we'll tell you about it later in the show. But also all the details are at the retrohour.com. 
And uh, only a couple of weeks left. And before we get into, you know, our Christmas program in the quiz and the best of 2021, which, you know, blows my mind. <laughs> we nearly finished with this year. But we have got some more incredible guests to bring you over the next couple of weeks, including this week. We're going to kind of go behind the scenes on Sega in that really interesting period, you know, from like the Mega CD through the Sega Saturn and into the Dreamcast with our guests this week. Well, we've not done a Sega episode for a long time, so I Mm. thought I'd actually go out there and get someone who's absolutely was at the top of their game at the time. And um, this is Mark Sobotnik. He's known as Bot in the industry, and he worked for Sega of America. As He kind of rose from the ranks as a tester to, they called him the product king when he uh, appeared on Electric Playground. And then later on, we're going to have him on in the future, And he helped launch the um, Xbox as well. So this one is all about the Dreamcast and behind the scenes. Me and Joe do this one. So I brought Joe in on this interview. What did you think about it? It's funny because, you know, we always do a best of at the end of the year. And this is definitely, definitely, definitely one of the best moments of the Retro Hour for this year for me. Um, He goes in pretty, he goes in pretty deep with some stuff behind the Dreamcast and some games and uh, a legendary game called Geist Force, which never came out on the Dreamcast. And he kind of tells us the whole story about that because um, I believe he was the production lead on it. And uh, it gets pretty dark, doesn't it, Ravi? But it was a it was a bloody fantastic chat. So, oh, yeah, yeah it's like, you know, Sega of America were kind of um, out there. And, and, Don't give it away. <laughs> and this was one of the last things that they did as well. But, you know, a lot of people also talk about the Saturn and they talk about the relationship with uh Sega of Japan so um, it's really good to actually go into the Dreamcast stuff as, and we do talk about Saturn and we talk about those early days so it was just amazing having Mark on uh, such a good personality and actually at the moment he's the director of desktop gaming at Intel as well so really nice of him to give up his time for us and he's very honest in this interview as well isn't he, he doesn't hold back no, oh yeah yeah no, no, so that's why I say don't give it away hold the gold so a special guest, Mark Subotnik, he's going to be coming up on the show in around 25 minutes from now. Now, of course, we've got lots of news stories to get through, as always. Let's start with a big one that I've been seeing everywhere this week. Microsoft, who published a letter from 1999 about a failed attempt to buy Nintendo. This is pretty funny. So it's funny because the headline everywhere is that Microsoft have published this letter from 1999. Unfortunately. They've got like they've printed the letter, but they've got like a big Microsoft tries to acquire Nintendo like stamp across it, so you can't actually <laughs> read the full letter. Um, but you know, we some people have kind of like tried to read around the edges and stuff like that. And a guy named St- Steve Ballmer, I believe his name. Steve is. So Ballmer, Steve yeah, yeah. Steve Ballmer's the guy that used to run yeah. around. He was with Bill and the old Microsoft team yeah. back in the days, and uh, he's a kind of. Uh, there's one impression I can do of him. Developers, 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 developers. <laughs> he was like... That's all you need to say about Yeah, Palmer. crazy hype guy. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he sent a, uh, a small team in 99 who, of guys who were working on the Xbox because the Xbox was, you know, started development on it and stuff around 99. And essentially their concern was, from what I understand, is there wasn't going to be a big enough IP for the Xbox, you know. There's not going to be enough games for the Xbox, so tell you what let's go buy nintendo and you know then we've got pocket change to microsoft yeah exactly so um it was the former director um of third party relations who they sent who kevin batches i believe his name was and they sent him to japan 
and I'm quoting here, so he made us go meet with Nintendo to see if they would consider being acquired. They just laughed their asses off. Like, imagine <laughs> imagine an hour of somebody just laughing at you. That was kind of how that meeting went. So apparently Nintendo just laughed at them for like an entire hour. Um, and apparently like some of the heads of Nintendo were there. So if you kind of like read around the edges of the letter, Nintendo president um, Hiroshi Yamamuchi and uh, a guy called Genyo Takada. Uh, sorry if I'm butchering names were, were there. And apparently, you know, it doesn't say who was laughing their asses off and stuff like that, but apparently they just literally just got laughed at that, you know, that Microsoft <laughs> wanted to buy a Nintendo. And I love, I love the honesty from Microsoft, you know, and, you know, it's kind of like, it's, it's sweet because obviously where Xboxes and everything is now, you know, they've been very successful over the last 21 years. But it's just funny that they kind of went in there and just went, yeah, we want to buy a Nintendo. I can't imagine if Nintendo actually turned around how much they would want, you know, if they said, yeah, go yeah. on, <laughs> like imagine. Because then, I mean, you know, 99, Nintendo yeah. was still riding high. I mean, that was, you know, the N64, which I know wasn't the most successful console, but still it was, you know, a bit, bit of a, a heavyweight console back in its day, wasn't it? So it's not like yeah. they were, you know, d- down in the doldrums like Sega were at that stage. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, okay, the N64 wasn't massively successful, but the amount of money <laughs> Nintendo must have had. And, you know, I think it was around the time of the Wii U when Nintendo actually did lose they lost money on the wii u but i can't remember who it was in nintendo but they said from the success of the wii and the ds essentially nintendo could afford to lose i can't remember how much money it was but it was a lot of money but they kind of I think it was they, about 56 billion from memory and they they literally said they could afford to lose that kind of money for the next 100 years and they'd still be able to yeah. to like sustain and i was just like that's an insane amount of money that they've got then. Like, they literally made that much money, you know. And they, they made that, they must have made that kind of money from the Game Boy as well, because the Game Boy sales mm. were unreal in the 90s. So, yeah, funny, funny little story to start the week off there. Oh, well, apparently, I've just done a little bit of digging here. Apparently, the offer that Microsoft made to Nintendo was $25 okay. billion dollars okay. to buy them. That's pretty big. So. Yeah, but I mean, bearing in mind today, I think they're currently worth ninety-five billion. Obviously, they've had the Switch, and you know, yeah. the Wii have been massive hits since then. But um, yeah, I just have these visions of them. You know, Microsoft just been ridiculed, and knowing what Steve Ballmer's like, I imagine that wouldn't have made him very happy. It's interesting because I'm looking at the letter here, like the zoom in of it, and uh, there's like, I appreciate you taking the time to arrange, and it's spelt kind of wrong. And yeah. it's all in capitals. And to be honest, it, look, it looks a bit like one of those letters you get, you know, I have a Nigerian prince who has lots of gold. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe they thought they were just pranking them. They were like, yeah. These guys were legit. <laughs> so. But it was worth a shot, wasn't it, Microsoft? You know? Can you imagine how gaming would have turned out, though, if that deal went through? I was about to say Mario would have been green, but I would have just been Luigi. <laughs> I couldn't even imagine like Mario on the Xbox 360 or something. That just seems weird. I, I know. It's just a weird what It's like an alternate dimension where that did happen. Yeah. Then again, I never thought I'd see um, Sonic on a Nintendo console back then either. And that yeah. happened. So, yeah. Uh, and that, that's been yeah. happening for about 15 years. So there we go. Yeah. <laughs> what could have been though? So yeah, very honest of them to put that out there. Um, and the release that letter is part of the, uh, if you look on the um, Microsoft 20 years of Xbox website. That's one of the things I published on there. So very interesting to look back on. Now, the Game Boy Advance, obviously, a system we've been talking about quite a bit recently, and definitely a highlight in Nintendo's range of handheld systems. But this is quite a cool little story. This is on Engadget, and I'll link this up in our show notes. This is a Game Boy Advance that's been hacked 
to run PlayStation games using the help of a Raspberry Pi, with apparently no modifications being made to the Game Boy itself. I, I don't know whether I'd call it a hack, but it's still very interesting to say the least. So this comes from a hacker <laughs> uh, known as, well, his name is Rodrigo Alfonso. And this is really cool. So he's got a Raspberry Pi free mini or Raspberry Pi free, sorry. And essentially we've, he's put RetroPie on there and mm. essentially he's modded it so that it plays through the Game Boy link adapter port. Yeah, it kind of streams the video. Yeah, and it streams the video to the Game Boy Advance, and then you use the Game Boy Advance buttons as a controller. But like you say, he's not actually done anything to the Game Boy Advance to get this running. He does say, however, the Pi does have to routinely give the uh, the GBA's processor a break. So mm. every now and then, it does t- it does just stop for a few microseconds, apparently. <laughs> just needs to sit down and catch its breath <laughs> um, and you know it, it doesn't work on every game um and obviously the controls you know the playstation one had more buttons than the game boy advance you know you got four shoulder buttons for a start and yeah four you know face buttons so obviously a lot less buttons but um you know he's got crash bandicoot and spyro the dragon running on them with smooth frame rates apparently as well you know and there's some like motion blurring and stuff like that on it by the looks of things but that's pretty awesome that he's got it playing on the Game Boy Advance. It's it's pretty mad. It's like we we covered NES carts that had the Raspberry mm. Pis in them, but then that would kind of be processed on the NES because it would like yeah. pass through them. Where this yeah. is using this mad like um, link, and I didn't know about this link and the fact that you can send compressed video and audio in real time to the Game Boy through this, and to have the responses and the input um, through this kind of uh, little multi adapter I, I didn't know you could do that and he's calling it remote play which really kind of makes sense because the pie does take the load off does all the processing sends it down to be redrawn and then it's just handling it at the right kind of screen mode and he can only mm. do it at a smaller screen mode you know he's managed to increase it a bit but um i'm just looking at the moment because he's made uh, the remote play options available on github Mm-hmm. And um, he's had to do a lot of stuff about uh, scaling and kind of palette swapping as well. And um, you can see it looks a bit divvered on the screen, doesn't it? It's got, it's got like the palette's not quite right. He's got to match it to the Game Boy one rather than have just a, you know, like a strict emulator that's yeah kind of ripped a screen out and put a pie in there. It's, it's still got that Game Boy Advance kind of um, palette and uh, color scheme. And he's made a video as well on YouTube, um, mm. which I'll link up in our show notes. I sort of sent to you guys actually in our Facebook Messenger group, but I just found this. It's interesting. And you're right. I mean, it doesn't look, you know, quite as, it's not literally just, when I read that headline, I thought all he's doing is using the screen from the Game Boy Advance as a display mm. for the Raspberry Pi, but there's actually more to it than that. Um, and he's got other systems running on here. He demos Mega Drive games, Super Nintendo games running on here as well, or via, if you look at it, he's actually got the Raspberry Pi in a case with like a, a battery compartment on the back yeah. of it, all stuck on the back of the Game Boy Advance. It makes it a bit of a beast. It, it's a bit of a beast, but it doesn't look like a Frankenstein's monster or anything. It looks like pretty official. It looks pretty cool, what he's made. You know, it reminds there. me of like, you know, TV tuners that you got back in the day. Yeah, it's a bit like, one of like the Game Gear or something. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and I guess, yeah, that's that's totally right. The TV tuner thing is it's that kind of technology, but also like, um, it's it, I guess it's online because he's got SSH connected to it and there'll be wi- wireless on the uh, Raspberry Pi. 
So mm. maybe you could do like updates or then download games onto it as well in the future, which which could be pretty cool. And maybe stream them at the same time. I don't know if the Pi would handle that. Yeah, and he's actually saying, I mean, if you check out the GitHub, there's a readme file in there as well that kind of explains how it works. Um, of course, you know, the, the link cable port, I think he said here, you know, natively it can run at two megabytes per second, but he's managed to push it up to a 4.8 with an overclock mod as well. And he's sending, you know, the video goes over a compressed stream. So really it means, you know, it, it can run it at the normal rate, but the, the more he overclocks it, the quicker the frame rate can be. So that's you know, pretty cool that, you know, it is actually using pretty much, he's maxing out the power of the Game Boy by, uh, by running this on it. So we saw the Game Boy um, original link cable where you could connect online and play other people online. And now we're seeing video being sent down the Game Boy Advance one. I really love this kind of idea of syncing up Game Boys or, or using the kind of port that was never intended to do that and meaning you're not modding your device at all and you're kind of running other stuff on it. It's it's a really smart way of going about stuff. Probably not if you want to win games. I wouldn't imagine, you know, playing Call of Duty that way. You're going to uh, come first in many matches. No, but you could probably watch a movie on it, couldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> They've already done that though, haven't they? Netflix. Netflix, <laughs> though. There you go. So yeah, very cool. I mean, that's the thing, you know, we often talk about these kind of wild and weird modifications and hacks and stuff that people have done for absolutely no reason other than it's extremely cool. And we don't need any more reason than that to enjoy these things. Joe Joe can play Fortnite on it. I I don't play Fortnite. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just playing Fortnite dances, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, yeah, if you want to check that out, I'll link up that video and the article in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, we're going to talk about a lost game from 30 years ago that's finally coming out on the Nintendo Switch and Palm Tops back in the day. There is a new MS-DOS Palm Top using a Raspberry Pi. You know, what can't you use a Raspberry Pi for? We'll talk more about that in a minute. Just before we do, let's take a quick moment to give a big thank you to uh, this episode's sponsor, our wonderful friends at Future Publishing, who, of course, bring you the amazing Retro Gamer magazine. Now, the thing is, Future Publishing, obviously, recently in the last 12 months, we've had new consoles coming out there. I was one of the lucky ones that managed to get hold of a PlayStation 5. I know you lads are still trying to get new Xboxes. We are, unfortunately. Wait till after <laughs> Christmas. <laughs> well, the thing is, not only do Future Publishing celebrate current-gen consoles, but also, you know, they cater for us guys as well, who enjoy the old machines too. And actually, if you subscribe, you can save up to 86% and get three issues for just three pounds so that works out at one pound an issue on all of futures gaming mags which includes stuff like play edge pc gamer and of course retro gamer and i know you're particularly excited about the game that's on the uh, the front cover of the christmas edition of edge magazine ravi yeah so i i saw a trailer with this and this is called stray and it's basically a game where you're it's like cyberpunk but you're a cat and um, you're kind of going around this cyber world, but also uh, like it's, it looked like a bit of a platformer. You know, you're a cat. You've got to climb up stuff and kind of use like little cat trails. And I've always just wanted to play a game as a cat. I think you sold it at it's cyberpunk and you're a cat. <laughs> yeah, <there laughs> that you go. That's all I need to say. Yeah. <laughs> and Play Magazine this month are all about God of War. Yeah, God of War Ragnarok. And that, you're not a cat, but you are the God of War, which is pretty cool as well. And uh, Riot Games in PC Gamer as well, who are a great company. I used to play League of Legends a lot. That, that's an awesome game, still is. And the current issue of Retro Gamer magazine, the cover feature on there is celebrating 20 years of Halo Combat Evolved. So if you want to get any 
of these magazines, like I said, just £1 an issue. And of course, you'll be supporting the Retro Hour podcast. Subscribe today and get your first three issues for just £3 by heading to this website right now. Open a new tab in your browser and go to magazinesdirect.com slash retro trial. So that's magazinesdirect.com slash retro trial. And a big thank you to our friends at Future Publishing for their support of the Retro Hour podcast. So let's talk about this game from 30 years ago that was apparently lost and is now coming back on the Nintendo Switch. And this is called Clockwork Aquario. I hadn't heard of this game before. I hadn't heard of this one either, but it actually comes from quite a big developer. Now, I don't want to butcher the name, but this game was made in 1992 by a guy called Rio Ichi. Nishazwazi, I believe his name is. Nice one, Joe. Well done. <laughs> um, and he is actually known for making the Wonder Boy series, um, which are obviously mm. really popular games. Um, still going, I believe, and have been going, you know, for like 35 years. And essentially, this this game was never released, and it was meant to be for arcade, you know, to play for arcade cabinets. The game never came out, and it was thought that the source code was lost. Now, strictly limited, they've not said how they've got hold of the source code, but apparently they found the source code and they are releasing it this week. It's actually out in the UK on the 30th of November. So it is actually out at the point of this episode coming out. It will be out already on the Switch mm. and it's coming out on the 14th of December in the US and Canada. It's got that proper kind of anime Wonder Boy look to it. Um, and it's like a classic platformer. That's kind of why they said that it's it wasn't released. So um, oh, yeah. if you think like around 1992, everything in the arcades was starting to go 3D. And th- this is like a 2D side-scrolling kind of platformer. And yeah. it just wasn't in trend with rainbows and like cutesy kind of stuff, you know, against all those 3D fighters and stuff. Um, they must have just put it to the side and said, right, we're not going to yeah. release yeah, this Yeah, I, I guess it was going up against like digitized graphics like Mortal Kombat you know, 92's Street Fighter 2 and stuff like that. So I see, yeah, I can sort of see where that's coming from. Now, I don't know if they've kind of like touched the game up quite a bit for the Switch, but this game does look pretty beautiful. Like the colouring, you know, and stuff like that in it. And just like the animation looks really, really strong. It looks pretty mad. Looks like it would be a, you know, a coin muncher. Um, so I'm hoping that the uh, the new version has got unlimited lives in it because um, it looks pretty difficult, but it has got that... Like Ravi says, it has got that proper rainbow, cutesy kind of look to it. I really want to know the story behind how they found the code. You know, if there's some kind of yeah. mad story to it, like that it was found on like a development kit that was just in like a pile of like discs somewhere or something. But I guess, you know, Strictly Limited might never tell. But it's cool that they've got it and that they're releasing it. It's coming out on PS4 as well on the same days, uh, which is pretty cool. It always seems to be PS4 and Switch, but they never come to the Xbox. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm just weird. reading that some of the elements um, had to be recreated. So, oh, okay. Um, sound effects, so, music, and graphics weren't. Some graphics weren't actually. I was going to say that's the whole from, game, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so this is not an arcade emulator. It runs on them. They've, they've basically ported this game. Yeah, the they've original source code. Image. But, but like, right. yeah, some of the graphics, sound effects, and music were not recoverable from the source code. So um, they had to like call the original. Uh, oh, okay. Western team in, and the chief programmer and the composer as well. Oh, okay. So they've, they've probably said, right, we've found the source code, get the crew back together, 
let's create this and do a really nice get the release. old crew back together that remind me of like <laughs> an old an old film so it's like we've got to get the crew back together like, <laughs> that's pr- that is one, cool, one last gig <laughs> yeah <laughs> the first thing i thought when i saw this game is that is so joe it's pretty Joe. It's pretty, yeah. I'm not talking about myself as a person, but it's pretty me. It's pretty cute. See, it's, it, it's one of those like bullet hell. Like I know it's a platformer, but it's just like, it's one of those really cutesy games. That you think it's going to be really easy, but it actually looks hard as hell. And I become like a yeah. completionist on it, trying to get every single trophy or achievement. Yeah. Um, it says it's got co-op mode as well. So, you know, you can oh, play, yeah, play scream, through scream with a friend. Wife, yeah. <laughs> or me and you, Rafi, will stream it. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, the sprites look gorgeous as well. These nice yeah. big 16-bit, you know. It looks like, yeah, one of the best kind of side-scrolling early 90s yeah. arcade. I mean, you know, something like on the, on the Mega Drive, that would look very at home as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Um, so, yeah, I think that I might pick that up and have a go this weekend, actually. It looks like it'll be a, <laughs> a fun, if extremely frustrating game, I imagine. Well, I'm actually off um, to a cottage in North Yorkshire this weekend with the missus and the dog, bringing my Switch with me, obviously. So um, if it gets too boring, I can always, you know, dig that out and play it this weekend. Uh, uh, the raving days are over, Dan. <laughs> the ra- oh, the raving days are. are over. But you know you know what's not over, what you could take with you? you could take a brand new palm top. There you now, go. There's an idea. I've never owned a palm top before, <laughs> but now I could. So this is a retro MS-DOS palm top resurrected using, of course, a Raspberry Pi. Now, looking at this... This looks like an old school device then. This is not something that's been made fresh. Yeah, for so, so like a palm top was like a PDA as well. And you probably, you might own one one day, Dan, if you ever get an Atari portfolio, which was a, kind of one of the first palm top PCs. Um, uh, Just a hacker bank machine with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, Terminator chasing after you. Um, do you remember the Scion palm tops as well? PDAs? I vaguely re- See, i didn't know much about palm tops back in the day i remember kind of reading about them but i mean their era i guess was probably i remember the atari ones but it was really early 90s wasn't it when you know it was like pure focused on my meager at that stage yeah and i know they were like you know a bit of a fad for a, a couple of years back in the 90s yeah and they were all like lcd and they'd all run off like a thousand batteries or they'd be quite heavy and they were all a bit clunky and you know you'd have features that you kind of don't really need nowadays, but uh, stuff like, oh, contact list and, like, you know, inbuilt Fessorus and stuff like that. No, actually, my auntie, I just remember this, she had, um, was it the Amstra- Amstrad notepad? Do you remember that? It was like Alan Sugar's little palm top that he made. Oh, And oh. it looked a bit like an overblown calculator with an actual keyboard. If you Google that, yeah, I think it's the the Amstrad notepad. <laughs> And that's the only one I ever remember using back in the day. And again, I mean, like, you know, the all the PCW range, it was like a, just a mini word processor. And I remember she got it for Christmas one year. I think she used it like once and that was it. I, I um, used to use one for a spell checker and uh, probably needed it because I said Fessorus, Fiasaurus. I, I, I can never get that Thesaurus. one right. Yeah. <laughs> so tell us about this project then. So someone's brought one back to life. Yeah. So this is the original um, Palm Top, which was the first MS-DOS palm top and um they basically gutted it and uh, chucked a raspberry pi in but but the way that they've done it is really beautiful they've, they've got a pi zero in there um they've got a big battery unit in there but also they've, they've basically hacked the um uh, membrane of the keyboard so he's reversed engineered it and he's using a device called a teensy which uh enables you to connect a us uh, a USB keyboard, and uh, 
he's managed to like do a key key map of it and a layout file which has uh, custom keyboard keys in there so you know you you can have all the special characters and the function keys working he hasn't got the special menu keys working but i think this is a really nicely designed kind of pda hookup and uh you know you get a lot more power and stuff with these raspberry pis you know you can have a decent battery in there um he's got ethernet on there he's got a usb hub um stuff that you would have dreamed of back in the days and um Raspberry Pi Even Zero. Wi-Fi as well, I guess. Yeah, Wi-Fi as well. Yeah. Um, but Raspberry Pi Zero, it's a bit underpowered. So maybe they're going to mm. put a Raspberry Pi Zero 2 in there and then have it really beefy. Um, he's also managed to fit the speakers in. And if you look at this kind of design, it's absolutely tiny. Like, um, yeah, it's really, really small. And to cram all the stuff in there is uh, pretty amazing. I wonder if it gets pretty hot, you <laughs> know. Yeah, the Pi Zero doesn't actually get that warm. And I guess he's probably not using any of the the actual device in there much, is he really? And, you know, the original NEC CPU that was in there ran at 5 megahertz. And it had 1 megabyte of RAM. And then there's um, an article on Hackaday here too. So what he's really done is he said he's, you know, he's, he's pretty much gutted the original Palm Top. Um, and he's transplanted the Raspberry Pi Zero with a few new bits in there as well. And it's actually really cool because there is one screenshot of it where it shows him running um, Firefox in there surfing the web on this um, little device's screen. So that would be very cool to, you know, to take that into like Costa Coffee or something and sit there surfing the web on that thing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just just doing my retro hour news on my palm top. <laughs> Have you ever tried to type on a palm top keyboard though? Have you seen how small those keys are? Yeah, I, I was I, I was gonna say I, I wouldn't have a chance on it. I've got proper big fingers, fumbly fingers. And I guess I guess <laughs> yeah, so. it plays Doom as well now. So <laughs> that would yeah. be another thing. Doesn't everything. Uh, but yeah, very cool. Another, you know, crazy, unnecessary mod, but we love seeing this kind of stuff. So uh, thank you so much for uh, everyone who sends us stories each week. If you want to get in touch, actually, if you spot any new stories, we have a little section on our Discord dedicated to it. It's a really simple way of getting new stories to us. Because I don't think we talk about our Discord channel enough. We've got, you know, quite a bit of activity in there now. Yeah, Discord's quite good. Uh, we did have tons of room and we've kind of reduced it down a bit. And uh, that's really helped. But also our cool patrons have really helped out. But um Check us out. So if you go to theretrohour.com and just click Discord at the top and uh, that's an invite to our server straight away. And it's really nice. Mm. You know, you can leave a message in there. You'll get lots of help and support. And it's kind of like a forum slash chat room thing. And Joe is a member. I think you've spoken there once. <laughs> I think I've put one message in there the whole time. I actually logged in about two weeks ago. I feel really bad. About 30 people had messaged me saying, like, welcome to Discord and stuff. And I was like, I've got no idea what I'm doing. Like, I'm, I am the youngest member of the Retro Hour. I am the worst with modern technology. <laughs> you, are the, you are the granddad of technology. I am technology the granddad of technology group. in our group. So luckily, Ravi is like all over this kind of stuff. Like I know, Dan, you're, you know, you're always on it as well, but Ravi is like the man when it comes to Discord and stuff, luckily. So apologies for that, but I will try and be more, more vocal in there. That is your New Year's resolution for 2022. It is. Grandpa it is. Joe. Grandpa learn Joe. Discord. Learn Discord. You bought cryptocurrency is. today, so you're getting there. You're stepping into the 21st century. <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. My dad's better than me with all this kind of stuff, and he's 58, so... But also, um, don't forget to check out our Twitch as well, because I've been oh, yeah, streaming yeah. on Twitch, and that's been going really well. Got a nice little community, and we just, like, Amiga Monday, 
I do a bit of Amiga streaming on Monday and then Friday we just do some random gameplay. So it's quite good fun on Twitch, uh, live interaction. Yeah, so lots of places to uh, get involved with us during the week. Now, before we chat um, about Sega with our special guest, Mark Sabotnik, he's coming up in a minute. Um, just thought we mentioned this as well, because this is a game that we've been talking about on the show, and I know people have been excited for this for so long, and it finally got released last year. I must admit, I haven't had a chance to play this yet. Um, and this is Paprium, which is like, you no, know, the ultimate Mega Drive beat-em-up game that I think was about a decade in the making. Um, finally got released on the um, the Mega Drive, but it was one of those games where it had some custom hardware in there, and you had to have the original cartridge, because at the time, I remember seeing the trailers and everything for it and being really excited to play it, missing out on the pre-orders and thinking, oh, well, they'll release a ROM, and I can play it on my EverDrive, which turned out not to be the case. But now, because so many people have been excited to play this game, they're finally opening it up and releasing it on not only next-gen platforms, you know, we're talking PS5, Switch, but also the Dreamcast as well, it looks like, which is pretty cool. Now, this is running on Kickstarter at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, running on Kickstarter. Um, at the point of recording this, they've doubled what they needed. They wanted £225,000, and they're on mm. 510000 so far, with 19 days still to go on it. Um, so I didn't even know that this had come about again. And like you say, you know, don't want to be too controversial, heard a lot of hate around the development of Paprium and how long it took and just the kind of like the way it was handled with the delays and stuff like that. But the kind of bottom line is that it's actually a really solid Mega Drive game and a lot more people wanted to get their hands on it. And a friend of mine who is going for a full, complete Mega Drive collection, he's, you know, he's about 90 games short now, has been like, oh my God, do I have to get Paprium? Because it's such an expensive, expensive game now on the Mega Drive, like mm. to buy on eBay and stuff. Um, so this is pretty cool that they're bringing it to next gen, and I really like the idea that it's coming to Dreamcast as well. You know, and it looks like Game Gear as well. By the looks, is of it the Game Gear as well? Here. Oh my yeah. days! That's that's, or, or at least that's a name. Yeah, is that a name by the, on the Kickstarter. Here. That's pretty cool. Yeah, um, it's just like Ravi says. Hopefully, it doesn't take. I don't think it was quite ten years, but I don't think that's too much of an exaggeration. Yeah. It's from um, the last one took. So hopefully, it doesn't take that long again for them to bloody just deport it this time. Yeah, well, they haven't got to remake all the assets and everything again, have they? No, they haven't. It's called Mini Paprium on the, on the Game Gear. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> Which is like a cute take on the original. But that's pretty cool that it's coming out to the Game Gear. The thing that I love about this Dreamcast release is, you know, they've, they've had a kind of tough history, but um, what they're doing is, you know, they still did a hell of a lot of stuff on the um, Mega Drive that a lot of people hadn't seen. And I think yeah. it's the same with the Dreamcast release. So they're having features like support on the VMU. Oh, wow. Yeah. So you have like maybe a Paprium logo, free player mode without needing the multi-tap as well. Okay. Um, yeah. So there's Got cool ports on the Dreamcast, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool little kind of um, features that, you know, they're really looking at, not just plonking it on the Dreamcast and making it kind of a really nice release. Yeah, it's going to have a proper dual case as well, you know. Yeah, and what I like about this, and you mentioned this um, recently when we did our um, after hours episode all about the Dreamcast, they're actually going to be tailoring the the cases. So the European version's got the special I was, design that we I had was over here. Literally just looking at that because like the Mega Drive version stuff, you know, you can either get the Japanese version or the USA version. Um, whereas with the Dreamcast version, just say you can get the you know the European version, which is pretty cool. Forty seven dollars. 
uh, for the regular edition or 97 for the collector's edition for the Dreamcast. So I think that would be the one I'm tempted towards. You yeah. Know. Um, as I mentioned on the After Hours, I don't actually have that many Dreamcast games. So Paprium on the Dreamcast would be a pretty cool one. But I'm just kind of flicking through the website here and I can't see... Okay, estimated delivery December 2022. So we're looking at a year for us to get a hold of this. So hopefully they actually stick to it this time. And you know, I yeah, think... Well, the Dreamcast it... one's going to be the year after, I think. Oh, is it? Oh, gosh. Version, yeah. oh, okay, so. maybe they're trying to be um, realistic then with their timescales yeah. and stuff like that. So, Which makes sense, because, yeah. you know, you want to be honest with people how long these things take. Yeah. And, you know, we, we were saying that on our chat before. I mean, there are people that complain about indie kind of games like this and the amount of time they take. But these things do take a while to make, you know, especially when the small teams. Yeah, 100%, yeah. And they needed, like, special carts before, didn't they? Um, yeah. So I yeah. guess, like, you know, now Dreamcast, there you go, it's on a on a, a CD or a, a GD-ROM or whatever they're going to use for that. But it's a lot easier than kind of having the custom Mega Drive cart. And, you know, with chip shortages and stuff at the moment, that could be a bit of a nightmare. So I think... This is going to be a bit quicker to get out, and uh, yeah, the the Game Boy, uh, the Game Gear cartridge as well. I'm sure, I'm sure there's lots of them around, or there's ways of getting them kind of printed. And seeing it's a mini version, I don't think it's going to need that extra extra kick that the other ones had. I think it's awesome that they're releasing it on the retro platforms too, because when I first heard about this, I thought, you know, logically, yeah, I'll get it on the Switch. Yeah, because I want to play it, and actually looks like it's you know it's slightly it's different to the Mega Drive version. It's in widescreen, for example. You know, if you play it on the Switch or the PlayStation, so you know if you've got your Dreamcast tucked up to an old you know square CRT, it'll be the proper aspect ratio. Yeah, that would look pretty pretty awesome. Actually, I'm actually looking now to try and see how I can buy the Dreamcast version. <laughs> um, but I just I don't know if I want to wait two years for it. But I feel like I'll, I'll regret that in two years' time when it comes out, and it's about six hundred quid on eBay <laughs> within a week of it coming out. When I've got a copy of my collection, Joe. Yeah, like, exactly. I went, and I'm like, no, no, it's you should mine. have backed it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, it's been a game that I've. I know you're the same. A game I've really wanted to play mm. since we first talked about it, like you know, six years ago, probably. Um, you know, the ultimate Mega Drive beat 'em up game, and I think it's great that they're actually giving people, you know much easier ways of playing it. I mean, I, I will probably get the Dreamcast version and I'll probably get it on the Switch as well. Oh. Just, you know, for two different ways to experience it. Yeah, so, uh, I, I know. I'm tempted. I like my trophies and stuff. So, uh, a hard one. Very cool. So if you want to read more about that, um, the Kickstarter is running. Got about two weeks left on it and I'll put that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, of course, the party season is here. December, only a few weeks to go till Christmas now. The time where, I don't know about you guys, I've got my work Christmas party coming up on Friday as well. Maybe have got a few friends coming over on Christmas to celebrate. You know what you need? You need a case of award-winning beer. And how's about we give you one for free? That sounds... What about that? For, for the season of that goodwill? That sounds Joe? amazing. That could be your pre-drinks for your Christmas night out. Or it could just be, if that's not your thing for free drinks, just putting your feet up, you know, in front of the fire while it's, you know, while it's nice and hot in the house, but cold outside with a nice cold beer. How does that sound? Well, bear in mind, this is a case of eight beers. So that is quite the pre-drink for going out to your Christmas party. <laughs> that's a big pre-drink. <laughs> <laughs> but... I mean, Beer 52 are incredible and they've been big supporters of the Retro Hour podcast. And if you want to get a free case of award-winning beer, head to this website right now. If you live in the UK, beer52.com slash retro. So that's beer, number five, number two, dot com slash retro and cover the £5.95 postage and they will deliver an exclusive case of eight craft beers worth £24 direct to your door. Now, 
whenever we have parties and get-togethers and we've got the Christmas quiz coming up, we've got our retro Christmas party that we'll talk more about in just a moment, there is always some beer 52 in front of us on the table because, you know, it's a staple part of our parties, isn't it? And it has been for years. Totally. And like when the news agents are closed and stuff like that, I'm like, I need some beer. <laughs> and there's beer 52 as well. So it's good for the late night after parties as well. And it's stuff that you wouldn't find in the supermarket as well, which um, is my favourite part because you try something different every month. Now, Beer 52 are beer boffins who are on a mission to find the very best beer anywhere on the planet. And every single month, they visit a different country and they seek out the best small batch brewery. So it means, you know, it's stuff you're not going to find in the supermarkets, stuff that you probably haven't tried before. And it'll open your mind to new tastes as well. And they sample the finest craft beer on the planet and then carefully put them together. They curate a case and send it out to their lucky members each month. Now, not only do they give you the highest rated beers from over the last 12 months if you get involved right now as well? And that could be from, you know, Germany's ancient ABK brewery. It could be the Garden Brewery in Croatia, West Yorkshire's own vocation and their really hoppy hazy pale ale. But also you get some incredible things in here as well. You get their award-winning magazine for men and, of course, Joe's favourite part, a tasty snack Absolutely. to enjoy with your beer. <laughs> Always straight in there with the snack. Always straight in there, straight away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Joe's like, what, what's the snack? Just pass it over while we have a look what's in here. <laughs> now, if you want to get involved in this, there is no minimum commitment. If you want, you can just try the free case, see what you think of it. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. And if you want to get your free case of eight craft beers right now, and support the Retro Hour podcast, head to this website, beer52.com slash retro, and a big thank you to our mates at Beer52 for their support of our show. So we did mention Christmas party coming up in a couple of weeks' time as well. Just a little perk that we give to our wonderful patrons of the Retro Hour podcast, who I've got to say, you know, yet again, have seen us through another year of doing this show. We couldn't do it without them. We, we 100% couldn't do it without them. And it, it was funny because, you know, I say it's funny. We were actually talking about it today in the group chat. And, you know, we were saying, literally, Dan said, you know, when lockdown happened, you know, almost two years ago now, mm. you thought that was it for the podcast. You were like, well, this is it. We're done. How how we couldn't get in our studio. Couldn't, couldn't we? get in our studio. You know, we had plans at the time to make and rent out a studio, you know, where we were going to make our studio in a rented property. You know, in the Patreons, you guys just really stepped up. And because of you, we're, we're still sat here remotely, of course, being safe and everything. You know, and I like to think delivering really good quality audio and really good content, you know, absolutely thanks to the, you know, the couple of hundred people who back us every month now. It's absolutely mind blowing. And, you know, can't thank you all enough, you know. So massive, 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 you know, appreciation as well. It's kept me saying, I know you've said it a few times as well, Ravi, it's kept you saying, you know, like, Doing this with my best friends every week's been amazing. Oh, I need it. <laughs> no, but it, it. They definitely have helped so much. Yeah, you just keep the show going. And also, it's a wicked community. Like, um, I just love doing the After Hours podcast and the patrons meet up. And uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's just really nice having people to chat to and talk about games. And, you know, we've been talking about new trends like video game raffles that I would have never have even kind of thought of and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's it's great to have other people adding to the show. Yeah, and that's my favourite part of it, the community, which, um, like I mentioned, we are going to be doing a virtual retro hour Christmas party. Uh, the date for that is going to be on December the 19th, a Sunday evening. 
at 8pm UK time. Christmas jumpers are compulsory. We'd love to see you there. So all you've got to do, everyone who backs us on Patreon, all tiers are welcome to the Patrons Hangouts that we do every month. Um, this one's going to be fun, so we'd love to see you there. And of course, you get access um, for our gold members and above to the Retro Hour After Hours podcast, which is an exclusive podcast that we make just for our patrons and we release every single month. And I think there's about, what, 18 episodes of that now in the back catalogue that they get access to something like i i always think we've only done about yeah. four or five of them but yeah we've done 18 <laughs> of them now we tend, know, we, yeah. we put one out about every three weeks every three four weeks don't we yeah uh, which are always really fun and a lot of people always say like oh i want to hear you know your opinions guys on you know your memories and stuff like that so you know that's kind of what the after hours is for so if people want to hear more about you know what we think of certain consoles and our memories that's that's the place to be I've been discussing with Dan, like, and Joe, what what kind of stuff we should talk about. And mm. we've been talking about years and we've been talking about games and stuff. But I also think we should do a few things like internet memories, like the first time you kind of logged on and stuff like focusing on some formats as well. So with loads of different interesting subjects on there as well. I'd love to hear the first time Joe downloaded a, a JPEG image of a lady. <laughs> I've actually got some funny stories there. <laughs> Save them for the after hours, Joe. I will do, I will do. Uh, PG. Um, so, yeah, I mean, you get access to all that. And, of course, the main reason you're doing it is just to keep this podcast going every single Friday. All patrons get the show early most weeks. You get it completely ad-free with extra content in there as well. We look after you. But, of course, we give you a huge thank you on the show in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. And I just want to say a big well done to uh, Lee Gregor just got himself a new job as well and um, he upped himself to a gold member this week thank you so much Lee thank you Sarah Transylvania Philip Goodson Graeme Sinclair and Julian Shepherd, who all backed us on Patreon we hugely appreciate your support and if you'd like to join our amazing Patreon community all the details are at theretrohour.com right then Christmas quiz coming up in a couple of weeks time um, I think I better get right in the questions you guys better get boning up only a couple of weeks to go until that now maybe we'll get a few tips from our guests this week because we're going to be going behind the scenes on Sega in that incredible era from the Mega CD right up until the Dreamcast with our guest Mark Sobotnik he's next on the Retro Hour podcast Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023 If you're in a bind this tax season LifeLock can help Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger. Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You're listening to The Retro Hour, and we're joined today by Mark Sabotnik, a.k.a. Bot. How you doing, Mark? I'm doing wonderful. It's awesome to be here with you. Oh, great. Thanks for joining us. And, uh, you know, we always start the podcast with uh, one question, and that was, what's your first gaming memory or the first kind of time you remember seeing a game or a, a computer? 
When I was a kid, uh, I, I grew up in a place called um, Hayward, California. It's uh, the East Bay, so the east side of, of the San Francisco Bay Area, area, but pretty far east, you know, about 45 minutes from San Francisco. Um, probably longer now with traffic. I don't live there anymore. <laughs> but we belong to a, a tennis club, uh, like where my folks play tennis and we swam like all summer long. And um, that was the first place I saw a Pong machine. And as soon as I saw it, I, I was begging for quarters. You know, that that's that's definitely the first memory of like, wow, okay, there's something really, really, really cool here. You know, that, that's one of those that gets filed away and you don't really recall it until much later and you realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm doing this for a living. When was I, you know, when was I first exposed? But yeah, that would, it would be at a Tanglewood Tennis and Swim Club and a Pong machine. So that was also dating how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> so from there, like, do you remember it like being pretty in- like instant? Like did arcades start popping up? You know, was there any kind of standout? you know, computers or consoles for you, or did it take a oh, while arcades. for you guys yeah, to get yeah, like a home arcades computer? Was, arcades was everything. Yeah. You know, as soon as the machine started showing up, that was like such a huge part of my childhood. Mm. And I would pick movie theaters that I knew had a, you know, a little arcade area. Yeah. Um, I would beg to get, go to the arcade. Um, anything that I could do to get my hands on machines. Um, yeah, there was, it was pretty well mapped out in, different parts of the, in San Francisco, Berkeley, Oakland, where I grew up, were like, oh, there's a Dragon's Lair here. There's a, you know, X machine here. So it's not even just arcades, but like what 7-Eleven could you go to and not have a massive line and get on a machine and, and sit and really master a game? Um, that's definitely where I first saw a Dragon's Lair, you know, full run was at a 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think on Gary Boulevard in San Francisco. So yeah, it, it just... You know, I was lucky enough to be born in 1970 where you know, all of this was starting to happen right at the right age for me, uh, where, yeah, arcades were an amazing place to hang. And there was, a, there was an etiquette, you know, there was, a, there was things that went across all the nation. So I'd go visit cousins at the East Coast and everybody had this thing of putting Carter, quarters stacked up on the monitor to show who was next and, you know, uh, crowding around someone when they were about to beat a high score and, it definitely had its whole um, social hierarchy and, and dynamics that were really interesting to look back on. What machine did you have then um, at home? Did you did you have any home computers or were you straight on the kind of Pong clones and consoles? No, um, yeah, Apple, when I was thinking about this this chat, Apple II Plus, I, I believe, was the first personal computer we had. And... Um, I found a way to get my hands on, I guess it's safe to say this, this far out, like Captain Crunch and a bunch of cracked software. So I had a ton of games found, you know, my way into getting my hands on, on software legally or illegally. So fell in love with um, all the word-based RPGs, you know, uh, Ultima and Zork and things of that nature. But the game that I love, I probably put the most hours into is a game called Rescue Raiders. Not sure if you remember that one uh, on the Apple II plus, but kind of ahead of its time and had a really awesome mechanic for uh, heat-seeking missiles while flying a helicopter that just, mm. I was, I, I had a joystick on the Apple II Plus and spent hours mastering like how to get out of uh, uh, being targeted by a heat-seeking missile and flying the copter. And it had an economy, you could buy units and uh, different vehicles and uh, a little bit of an RTS aspect to it. It was really uh, awesome, fun game. Well, how, how did you end up then, 
like obviously a lot older getting involved with a Sega of America. So this is a weird transition. A lot of people ask like, how the heck did you go from that to that? So I did a little bit of university never, never actually finished and got a degree was dabbling around with a, with an acting company and went on tour doing that. And then started doing underground, like, um, raves were, were, were a term a lot of people call them, but you know, basically underground, uh, clubs and dance clubs yeah. uh start of electronic dance music um was reasonably successful in that and then that was tapering off as far as the number of people coming out to the events that i was throwing i needed a way to make money um and a friend saw an ad in um in the paper for temp testing at sega of america and um i thought well you know i came so i still that never left me uh i was pretty hardcore a lot of, at that time, a lot of very highly competitive Madden tournaments with, with all of our friends and um, fighting games, um, even had an EO Geo. So Samurai Showdown had quite oh, wow. a bit of a uh, run. So yeah, I was still heavily into gaming uh, and heavily into, uh, you know, bought all the systems and still played a ton, but uh, didn't really realize there was a way to have a job in it. Um was in a totally different world, but had enough skill and knowledge around games that uh, I went down and interviewed. Uh, they asked, like, you know, how many uh, gems are in Sonic? If you finished it, really, you know, you'd know the answer. And simple, you know, to me, simple things like that, but I guess tripped up a lot of people. I collected comics since I was, like, uh, 10 or 11. I've actually been going through those lately. And um, the person interviewing me was a heavy comic collector, and we just hit it off. And that mm-hmm. probably got me the job. Because uh, we geeked out on comics for a while, and I, I knew enough to hold my own with them. I got a job as a as a temporary tester, making you know I think it was nine bucks an hour, yeah. uh, working the night shift, which was <laughs> three p.m. to eleven p.m. So I could still do the club stuff, right? Yeah. So I did have to give up uh, my other income and my other passion. And I didn't really take the job thinking I'd be sitting here talking to you all almost well, you know, twenty eight years later probably to the day, because uh, I joined in November of 93, that, you know, I'd still have a career in doing anything remotely to games or that any of that would have happened. I really viewed it as as a temp job, um, but a few things happened along the way that, that led me to still being here. So how did that feel? You know, all of a sudden you've gone from, you're a young man, you know, been raving <laughs> by the sounds of things, putting on these shows and stuff like that, all of a sudden you know, you're working for Sega and by the sounds of things, you're a, a big, big gamer. What what was that like? How did that feel? And what were the first kind of games they kind of like, what was the atmosphere like? Like, yeah, hit, you know, sit that, here, play that, this that, game. Amazing. Like people like, uh, sorry, I cut you off there. Um, okay. The first game is, uh, it was Sega CD was just getting going when yeah. I joined. A lot of games had already been uh, in the hopper. Genesis was, was doing pretty well, uh, you know, by 93. Um, and Sega CD was about to come out. I can't remember what year Sega CD came out. 93, 94, probably. Mm. It might have already been out then, yeah, because I think Joe's CD had just shipped right when I joined, which was the football game. So, yeah, probably was already in market. And I worked on a game called Racing Aces, which was mm. a flying game for uh, the Sega CD. That was the first thing I tested. I remember uh, being sat down and handed a disc and a, a seat and a test plan and basically told, go. Uh, <laughs> <you know? laughs> uh, uh, and then, you know, I have friends that, that join later that I did the same thing too. It's, you know, you're pretty much just thrown in the deep end and 
seeing if you can make it or not. Um, it wasn't anything sexy like Sonic or anything like that, but uh, it was a fun game. It was, you know. So what was the relationship like between the testers and programmers? Like, was it was it pretty good? <laughs> or did the programmers sometimes get a bit annoyed if you guys had some feedback? Or We all thought we were smarter and knew better. We were playing the games, beating the games, you know, the ones actually getting the real experience that the consumer was going to have. But we were often told, you know, what was the quote at the time? Uh, You're one-eighth of the market. In other words, you're the whiny group that's going to buy the product anyway. So, like, how valuable is your opinion? But we did have a, um, a section in bug reports that was called the comment section. And you, um, by all means, could draft as many comment bugs as you want. Um, the process for bugs staying open or closed, though, was the lead testers and, t- and sometimes the assistant lead would go meet with the producer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and or the piston producer go over the bug report. And sometimes they would say, you know, this is closed. This is a feature. We're not fixing this. And, you know, go through and slash things. And they had the right to look at comments and just wipe them out and say, yeah, that's stupid. No one's going to do that. Or go, wow, you know, good idea. I'm going to bubble that up to the developer. And we did get uh, plenty of comments in the games. You know, they just had to be good ideas. You know, there was... The tyranny of the idea prevailed even back then. If you didn't matter if you were a tester and came up with a great idea for a game, you would get it in there now. Did we get credited for that? Probably not, but still, still got to say, hey, I wrote that comment bug. Look at that. It's in here. <laughs> but we got to man the boost at E3 and first, you know, when CES and first E3s, first GDCs, we were there showing off games because we knew the most about the games. It was pretty awesome. And, and it was the way to get a producer job back then. Yeah. There was no go to college and study blah. It was go get a job as a tester or in customer service. Those were, were the two paths. And hope that someone likes you enough and you do a good enough job, they get plucked up and given an opportunity to move out. Well, I, w- I was going to say, what was the kind of atmosphere like at Sega of America? Because I guess, you know, uh, it, it was a Japanese product, but you guys were kind of selling it in America and it must have been felt really cool and like you were on the kind of cutting edge of tech especially with stuff like the um Sega Mega CD uh which you know CD was really early on especially with video and stuff like that on it I don't think we were technically the first even though we claimed to be the first for anything was Turbo Graphics was honestly out first with a CD based system but <laughs> I think a CD was probably right around the corner there was you know, so I'll, I'll, I'm going to try and answer this honestly because there's lots of different times and different feelings. So mm. um, like the Kalinske days, we're building a brand, we're beating Nintendo, oh my God, and rocking at the Genesis was like an amazing time. Um, very exciting. You know, it's well documented in the console wars. I, I think I show up in that for a brief moment, walking by with huge, long, curly locks and I was definitely there during those times and loved it, right? It was it was amazing. As time went on, I realized more and more what it meant to work at, um, at not at HQ, right? To be at the American sub of a Japanese-based company in the games industry it can be challenging. This is not a new story you've heard. <laughs> you have encountered this uh, feedback from many others. Um, you know, at first it was all eyes on beating Nintendo, just rocking. And so that rally cry with, you know, gets you going. Then it's, you're moving into the next things. It's Sega CD and 32X. And some of those were rough, right? And why are we making those decisions? 
it's one thing to write a comment about a game and hope it gets in and be a little frustrated if you see some bad decision that you don't think should be made go forward. It's another when it's at the platform level and you you know that your managers and others around you are all aligned with like what the, the one way of potentially doing things and the decisions are just made for, for different reasons. Mm -hmm. uh, so Sega was very frustrating at times for a lot of us because you know, I think the Dreamcast is the best example of that. And you'll, you'll hear that when you talk to other people from that time of, we had a pretty awesome plan set up. Like we were doing some things that you would say, well, that's a great way to launch a platform. The resources to do that were removed and we had to do our best. So you mentioned a few moments ago about how you can kind of like developing your career and stuff like that. So how how did that kind of come about for you? So obviously you're a tester. I'm guessing you were a tester for a little while. You know, you said at the time it was kind of like you're you're a tester and you make your way up, or you're you know in customer support, customer service, and you make your way up. How? What's the story there with you? What happened? Did somebody? You know, I was, yeah. Oh, I'm so lucky. You know, these one of those like holy moly. By the I joined right before a landmark case uh, hit the industry pretty hard. <clears throat> there was a case that. I think it was Apple and Microsoft, if I recall right. Now we're relying on an old memory here. Um, but it was about um, contracted wor workers or um, you know, temporary workers being treated like full-time employees. And there was a big lawsuit. Uh, they lost. And there was yeah. rules now put in place where temporary employees, I think, now can only work for 18 months or a period of time. And So that ruling happened. This is, this is a pretty epic story in Sega history. So Sega is crushing it. Sega test department has been like just rocking it, doing a really good job of making sure our games are high quality when they go out the door and we capture the bugs and things aren't crashing in people's hands. You know, lots of lots of titles coming through, really good reputation, you know, for setting the standard in QA in the industry. So we get rewarded and they take the whole product development team including QA to Great America, which is the theme park right by um, where Sega was based. Um, that's time, pretty awesome theme park, great roller coasters. All, all. Everybody has an amazing time. Come back to work on Monday, 60% of the staff is being laid off. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, whiteboards had hangman on it and just put, you know, name after it. People didn't want to answer the phone when the phone rang in their queue because they knew what was coming. It was a, um, it was a brutal day or days. And there was only a certain amount of permanent, what they call permanent slots, right? Yeah. So you're a temp or a perm. I was a temp. I believe two permanent slots left. Uh, one for day shift, one for night shift. I was on night shift. There were three of us selected to potentially get the job. I had luckily, I think it's Dark, no, Dark Wizard. There was a hexagonal-based RPG game, Sega CD, uh, you, you all might remember it. I'd have to, I want to look it up. It was amazing. Um, I ended up kind of being a speedrunner and test runner. I was good at it. I liked it. Um, it had a couple characters you could you play. And um, we, to get through the test plan, would team up with someone. And you'd, one person would play through night shift, one would play through day. I excelled on the game. I stood out to the producers. Something there made them realize, hey, this dude might be worth keeping around. Uh, he actually seems like he might actually not just be here for the, you know, the ability to play games for a living, and, uh, which is not as cool as it sounds, by the way. We can get into that in a second. 
really playing early builds and over and over the same thing and verifying whether a broken part has been fixed or not. It's not like you're sitting back and just playing, but it's a job. But I got down to final three. One of the three said, hey, you know, I want to go be a writer. I don't really care about the games industry. So I want to be a journalist. I'm out. And I got the job. And then I made a run in it. Uh, once I was in, I was like, well, I got it. Well, okay, cool. What in the past? How do I, how do I be a producer? How do I get out of yeah. this test job? Because it seems like, you know, you're in this pool of many and not a, not a lot. The odds of getting out are really, really slim. It's almost like mm. the NFL, right? Yeah. A lot of people playing football, very few get out of that because, you know, we had a ton of people come through um, because of the temp rules, right? Lots of people on their internships from college came through and did you know, their summer job at Sega Test. Um, and had a lot of blast fun with us, but you know, didn't turn it into a career. So I don't know what it is, but I managed to get, I think a year in, year and a half in, I got tapped to be the supervisor of the night shift. Mm-hmm. So now I'm, I'm starting to manage. I'm, I've, uh, I've, they see some potential in me. And so great, I, I took advantage of that. And that led to a really unique position where I was the senior software specialist or something like that. But I, I did a lot of different things. I got out of test and I did PR, I did marketing. I made like, I did a lot of the back of the box screenshots that you saw. I played a lot of the games that you saw in commercials. I was playing that footage. Oh, wow. I, I did all these different kind of product marketing, PR things. I wrote the copy for the back of Christmas nights and helped get that deal done, which wasn't really much of a writing job. I took a very popular poem and changed a few words and left it. <laughs> Uh, so not tap, not giving myself a big load of credit there, but you know, just really cool uh, opportunity. Um, learned a ton from that side of of the the business. I was on the same floor as all the VPs and senior executives, and I started getting pulled into more of those conversations. And that was right when Bernie joined, and that led to him coming to me one day and saying, "Hey, we're you know we're going to have two internal teams uh, for Dreamcast." Do you want to leave where you are and go make a game? And I was like, oh, man, yeah. So I joined a team that was working on one of the, uh, through the green light process. And uh, through lots of different circumstances, I ended up being the producer of that team and making a run at a Dreamcast game. So you ended up moving into into PR. And uh, I was wondering, was, was that just the Dreamcast period then? Or did you do anything to do with the Saturn? Because I remember seeing you on a electric playground actually uh, (laughs) promoting some saturn stuff yeah the pr bit was all saturn Uh, dreamcast was all me working internally as a producer so Mm. i had shifted over for that um real early on in fact i had worked on you know uh before power vr um when we were doing 3d effects early prototype I was already working on that making a game on that remember when we got the new dev kit so it was like wait what what can we get a new schedule? No, nope. just new hardware, same schedule. Like, oh man. But um, yeah, the PR thing was, it was a trip. I didn't really ever see myself as being a, Hey, you're going to go out and be the guy talking for Sega. Um, but Lee who ran PR thought, Hey, this basically Lee and Bernie were like, he knows all of our games and he knows how to talk. We're putting him in front of people because he's actually a credible gamer. Like he plays everything. He finishes everything. He actually knows everything. His opinions are really similar to the gamers. So let's put him out there. And um, yeah, then one day Tommy and crew 
came over Electric Playground. They interviewed Bernie. And then they were like, hey, we want to interview me, uh, you. And I started doing a couple interviews with them. So I think it was all over season one um, that I was on that. But I did, you know, a few other TV things and um, went out and tried to get covers for Sega Saturn. So like Duke Nukem on, you know, different uh, magazines and things of that nature. Uh, it was a great experience. I learned quickly that I don't really have the makeup to do that job long term. It wears on me. As you can recall, Saturn was a tough time for Sega. So part of what happens in PR is you go meet with analysts and people that write about your company and they uh, ask really tough questions and say not nice things. <laughs> and for me, that was, I bled you know, blue, I was mm. a Sega person. It was really hard for me to be like, so you lost $350 million this quarter and your console is tanking and what's your strategy? And, you know, to not want to lash out at that person versus give the padded PR line, which I'm, I'm good at, but I don't like doing. Right? I mean, you get like, a bit like, of a grilling, don't you? Uh, I get the grilling and I also didn't really like having to give a, the company line every answer. I've gotten in trouble even current current job where every once in a while I let I let the truth out. <laughs> not, that, not that I'm lying for PR, but just you know, there's a, there's certain rules and I break them, uh, and I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. So. <laughs> you sound like me. So speaking of the Sega Saturn, did you did you really believe in the Saturn? Did you think you know? Do you think Sega messed up with the sac with the Saturn? Do you think it could have been better, or do you just think? Sony just did a better job. You know, how do you feel about that kind of period? We didn't see 3D coming. We really didn't see 3D coming. Um, you know, I was working on some games um, that were pretty awesome in my mind. And we saw some of the, you know, some of the Saturday games in the lineup were, were pretty decent. Um, yeah. And then we caught wind of Ballerina Toshinden. It, it just like, oh, they brought... They are bringing 3D real time to the market, and we have like the ability to support two and a half D. So pretty early on, I think we knew we really had a a tough road ahead of us. Mm. And the way we launched pissed off retail. So it was like we just that that system had a a tough start and never mm. got never got over it. Yeah, and it's a shame, you know, because of the Saturn. Me and my friends, we always spoke about the Saturn. You know, we were we were PlayStation boys and when we all picked up a Saturn when they were cheap, when we all had PS2s and stuff, me and my friends used to always say the Sega Saturn was like a 2D monster. You know, when it came to 2D games, that machine was an absolute, you know, for fighting games, you know, X-Men and stuff like that, absolute killer machine. So I always find it such a shame that that happened, but it was, it did really well in Japan. It did a lot better in Japan, funny enough, than it did. It did, it did. I mean, I was was assistant lead on Panzer Dragoon, which I think is an amazing game. Yeah. still was and for its time to have that mobius look and um some interesting shooter mechanics it's a lot mm-hmm. of fun yeah i was riding high with that game until i saw battle arena and then it was like oh wow oh we're in trouble you know there was like i scud and some really cool things we did um that took advantage of the way the architecture worked uh in a unique way but overall just mit- missed the boat on the architecture shift Mm. and that's my my call i mean others may have a completely different opinion we could have done it if we had marketed better or this or that but architecture was tough there 
Yeah, yeah, I bet. And, you know, there was always obviously that strong rivalry between Sega and Nintendo, you know. One, was that taken seriously, you know? And two, when, when, you know, was it the Battle Arena Toshinda when that was like, oh my God, we need to now take Sony seriously? Or was it a little bit before or after? No, that was it. That was the moment where it was like, oh crap, we're not fighting the old person anymore. We're fighting a new person and they've got something Mm. pretty unique here. They've actually created a a box that's going to challenge us. Mm. And then it did. It shifted to Sony uh, was, was the focus. And Nintendo was doing different things already back then, right? Yeah, yeah, that's just Nintendo all over, isn't it? So, which which, ti- which Sega titles did you find really like innovative and you know really enjoyed promoting, and maybe kind of went under the radar, and you think should have got more love? I Knights was like I really loved Knights, but I don't think that really went under the radar. I'm trying to no. think of I don't know everything that I loved. I think got some attention. Yeah. You know, Gunstar Heroes, Dynamite Heady, those are things mm-hmm. that I think are like when people are like, what would you bring back from those eras? Like those games were awesome yeah um, there's treasure games and, yeah and, and there's a few of them that like just never get on the list that i think should be on the list so i you know i give a call out to those two shout out to my to my treasure fans or uh, fellow fans I, I, i'm a big treasure fan and i just i i completely agree they don't they don't get enough love on these compilations you know every now and then you might see gunstar heroes but but that's it so was there a lot of hope well, when bernie stole you know, came over from Sony to Sega. What, how did that feel? There was, I think some people loved him and was like, awesome. This guy's coming from Sony and he knows how to do third party he built their business. We're going to, we're going to go crush it. And then there was some people that probably found his style uh, rough. You know, there was, there was, the, I think he was a love or hate. You either loved Bernie or you hated him. But if you hated him, you probably didn't stick around very long. And was there a kind of cultural shift uh, during that period as well? Like, um, was that an urgency? Yeah, at Sega that there wasn't before. He, he brought a fight, right? He really brought a like. I'm, I'm, I was over there. I know what those guys are up to. We're gonna kick their ass. We're gonna do this. Like, I remember the first um, E3 where we unveiled Dreamcast. He, uh, hopefully, he won't get pissed at me for sharing this story. But he like <laughs> he lit a cigarette on the floor, our cigar on the floor, pop champagne. Right, totally broke the rules of smoking on the floor of E3. But in our back tent with all the you know leaders or whatever and the team that was not just leaders the team that was there bernie was really good about building a sense of everyone's in this fight and everyone's part of it and everyone's part of this um this machine that's moving towards doing great things and he would say i believe in the tyranny of the idea if the janitor has a good idea that's going to make the Dreamcast better. We're going to take it and run with it. I don't care who you are. <laughs> and, you know, I have an open door policy. And, and But he, he lived by that. He may have been scary to some people and tough, but he did. You could just walk in and say, Bernie, this is, we need to do blah. And he would, he would he'd listen to you. He might curse you out and tell you you were an idiot and get out of his office, but he would, he would at least hear you out. And uh, it, it really did change the culture. Um when Peter joined uh, Peter Moore for a Dreamcast, he also does an amazing job of that. And and seeing the two of them rally the troops was pretty phenomenal. And we did, you know, we we came out the gate pretty strong with Dreamcast. It just it just didn't it didn't have the support it needed. So w- with the Dreamcast, like you know, obviously Sony are killing it. Things are going a bit pear shaped with the Saturn. When did you first kind of hear about the Dreamcast and? 
how did you know how did things feel like obviously we spoke about the culture there and you know Bernie was really you know making it a team effort and everything but you know did you you know did you really think like okay I believed in the Saturn I believe in Sega did you you know did the Dreamcast give you that oomph as well it did and I was but I was again I was in a really new position so then all of a sudden Mm. I'm given a chance to go try and make a game for a new console Mm. um a launch title right which I stupidly have signed up for twice in my in my life. <laughs> I don't recommend it. Um, it's a great opportunity if you have a team that you know you can pull it off with. I'll put it that way. Um, so ideally with a team that's already shipped something. But a new team, new hardware, uh, new IP is a really big challenge. Um, and that's what that's what we were doing. Um, so Bernie gave me this huge opportunity. Um, you know, he and I had a great relationship. I had come through for him in other roles. He gave me a chance to go uh, work on a title. Um, Partly through that, getting the title uh, approved, the team had asked if I would take the reins of the team. And so I, I ended up moving from someone working on the title to, to actually running it. Um, and like I said, we were working on early, early, early stuff. So before the architecture was solidified, we were already up and running and working on it. And there were multiple teams working on, on getting approved. We got the, the green light to make a... A game called Geist Force. Mm. There's some um, videos out there. It was actually the E3 shooter. So the thing that Bernie showed for Dreamcast at E3 with the spaceship flying shooting, that was my team's. Mm. Uh, Right. So we were to be the launch title. It was a Star Fox clone. Yeah. Uh, Not to say that we had any amazing ideas. We we had a cool uh, narrative that was very different. Um, We actually had... A very diverse cast. I'm looking back and I'm like, wow, we were ahead of our time there. Um, both gender and you know racially diverse as mm. far as the, the cast of characters in the in the in the game and really really amazing artwork, uh, really amazing team. Um, and uh, you know this one's a sad story. We were we were greenlit. We were rep up and running. We had the E3 shooter video going. Felt really really good about what we were doing. Um, you know. I'll answer your question, then I'll get back to the story. So, yeah, yeah, I was excited about Dreamcast. I was super excited about it. I got to go over to Japan uh, and see, you know, uh, Sega Rally up and running on it, uh, other things running, you know, on the on the system. Um, I I worked closely with Mizuguchi and got to see uh, Space Channel Five and things that he was working on. I was stoked. Uh, the 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 bit I had alluded to before where. We had a plan I believed in. Um, so Bernie had brought in uh, Shuji Utsumi, who's, who's at Sega again now. Uh, he's, I don't know, he's one of the senior C-level executives there. My apologies, Shuji, for not remembering your title, but he's running stuff over there. Awesome um, person who had come over from Japan uh, and had worked with him at Sony. Uh, and Gretchen Eichinger uh, was running our third party. Shuji was, uh, was, uh, was heading up... Um, uh, different sections of the business. And, and we had Eric and Kurt Bush. So Eric Hammond and Kurt Bush running up product development in North America. Uh, you know, Eric is famous for making one-on-one, uh, one of the first EA sports titles at, at 19, um, industry legend, Kurt, another industry legend. And they, this group of us had, um, and, and I'm forgetting others, I'm sure Kathy Schobach, uh, who's over at Apple, lots of us got together and basically mapped out a plan to really launch Bright, which 
um, from everyone's experience meant seeding a lot of developers with early kits and money to go come up with ideas and then cherry picking the ones that look like they're going to actually launch and are fun and building a really awesome portfolio of, of new IP and then landing all the right third parties. And um, our strategy was, was, in my opinion, still the right one, having been a part of a lot of console launches. But partway through, our entire third party, party budget was cut. Uh, we had to cancel all those things that we had seeded. And um, that changed the narrative. And then more and more third parties, um, you know, the historically famous one is EA not uh, signing on. And I, I was in Tokyo when that decision was made. I was not in the room. I was outside of the room waiting for everybody in the room to come out so I could go to a meeting or dinner with them. And I remember the look on everyone's face when they came out of that room. And I, if you ask me, when did I get concerned about Dreamcast success? It was probably that moment. I think Larry and Nancy just told us that we have no EA for launch. Okay. And not to say I didn't believe in Greg and Scott over at uh, Visual Concepts, because I did. What they were doing and did with NFL 2K was phenomenal. I mean, that game was groundbreaking and pushed, you know, that form of uh, gaming really far fast and gave Madden a run for their money and uh, was, was why those, that team is still crushing it with uh, their sports titles today. Um, so don't want to take anything away from what they were doing, but Sega Sports still wasn't number, you know, the top dog and, and it was pretty much known you can't launch a console without EA. And what happened then with Geist Force as well? Was that um, released oh. and... Uh... Yeah, and I'm hoping someday it may see some sneaky way of getting out to people so they can at least see what it was. Um, so this is a sad story, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell the truth, and if it comes back to bite me for telling the truth here, so be it, because um, there's no love loss in how this, this actually went down. The team was, um, was doing decently well. Uh, we had started to really discover fun. We were um, challenges on getting the cutscenes done. We had pulled in a third-party company, and some of that we were hitting some bumps in the road on, but otherwise we were, we were doing all right. We had shown at TGS uh, and people were, were relatively uh, excited about the progress of the game. And it was, it looked amazing and, and people were quite excited about um, how it looked. And to be honest, from launch title, that's really what you want, right? Something that you put in and go, okay, that's why I got a next gen system. Nice if it plays well too, but pri job one was making sure it looked pretty. So it did. Naka came to visit with his team to tour our studio, look at our tools and engine, which we had a lot of proprietary, really phenomenal um, tech going. I would say still to this day, some stuff that I haven't seen replicated quite at the level we had. And he didn't realize that the, um, the white people on my team, a lot of them spoke fluent Japanese, mm. including my lead engineer. And, uh, started speaking in Japanese, assuming that no one would understand, started talking about what parts of our tech they were going to take for Sonic US, uh, and then basically said, as soon as they ship, fire everyone but one of the engineers who knows their system and uh, roll him onto our team for Sonic. And my team heard all that. So you can imagine how they felt. Yeah. yeah. Here's a leader of Sega. I mean, Naka's... Pretty powerful at Sega at that time. There was two camps. There was the Naka camp and the Suzuki camp. I'm sure you've got that well documented in, in your previous chats with others. Uh, that's you know that's also history now and, and known. Um, but he he wielded quite a bit of power. So uh, 
I had a group of five engineers that now knew that that was potentially happening to their baby. They were outside of visual concepts, the only people in North America working on a 128-bit gaming console. Pretty easy to go get another job. So they did. Yeah. And I had to go to Bernie and tell him, I just lost my five lead engineers. I got a proprietary engine. Even if I hire, I got a burn rate of X. I won't quote that. I'm not going to go into all yeah. dirty secrets, but a healthy burn rate for that time. You know, we were an expensive title on title for, for that time. Nowadays, we wouldn't have been an indie time. It'd be like <laughs> a really cheap indie title. But for then, it was a lot of money. Mm. Um, it was impossible to justify nor get. It would have taken me two months to hire, another two months to ramp up. Um, and then, you know, so um, four months of burn rate where pretty much nothing's happening. So um, we went to Visual Concepts and I had a chat with Greg and Scott and said, hey, any chance you have the bandwidth to take this on? They didn't. Um, they were more than willing to give us space to finish the game there if we could get you know, funding or the team total support, you know, not, not nothing negative against them at all. They were amazing. Um, but we just couldn't find a way to land it and, uh, had to go tell the team, Hey, the rest of the time we're here, work on your resumes. And there is, there are builds of the game out there. I've seen videos of it. Um, I have friends that archive stuff and do things that I wouldn't mind seeing do something with it so that it could be accessible to people. Cause I don't think Sega will ever, uh, bring it to, to life. There's there was quite a bit playable. Definitely not a finished game. I wouldn't even say it got to real beta, but mm. um, multiple levels, a couple boss fights, some cutscenes. Music was amazing. We hired a, a professor, a college professor that had his whole students do a full uh, symphony recording, and then gave that to local because of my background DJs who then. Uh, remixed that and put like an electronic beat behind it, you know, very ahead of its time with what we were doing. So you had that kind of, we wanted a Star Wars, John Williams-esque, but current and for the 90s, at late 90s at least, and have that kind of EDM remixed uh, classical score and we're having professional voice acting. You know, we were, we were doing the whole, for that time, for a 99 title, we were going big budget had the effects team that worked on Battle of Babylon 5 working with us. Would have been awesome. Had Diesel Clothing doing a clothing line to support us. Wow. Had even talked about toys. So, yeah, it was would have been, could have been. I, I was going to say, like, um, the Dreamcast was so ahead of its time and, like, some of the features, stuff like the li like little VMU and the uh, <laughs> online... Money. <laughs> yeah, the, the the online play as well, stuff like that. Uh, yeah, was fantastic. What 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 things did you really enjoy about the Dreamcast? I thought we were so ahead of our time, but I also there was times as an employee, to be honest, where I was like, ah, you know, this whole there was a push to call it an e machine, an e machine, because there because the internet was just getting going, and you know, this idea of online gaming, and um, you can do more with this machine. Looking back, how freaking forward-thinking Sega was on so many things that just weren't really mature enough to bring to market that eventually did come to market, right? Yeah, um, totally. And Dreamcast is just such a good example of that in so many ways. And it's amazing that we were able to do the innovation at the platform level we were. I wish that the software, you know, that story I told you wasn't true. 
I wish that it was a different story where they were like, they realized that that was a brilliant strategy and we were getting amazing IP developed and doubled down and gave us, you know, twice the budget. And we just, we lined up the best console portfolio ever and knocked it out of the park, right? Because we knew then, hey, you got to develop a second spike. We can't all bank on Q4 holidays, our only season to sell software. We've got to find a way to get, you know, more software at a regular cadence to keep the sale of the hardware going. Like those are problems that probably weren't solved till 360 as far as my career, but um, we're well aware of back in Dreamcast day. And how how much did the kind of, you know, format of the uh, Dreamcast affect it? Like, you know, just the fact that the, the PS2 was that DVD player and, you know, it's such a kind of hot, hot demand on it was, was, it was, was, and that again, was that killer? Yeah. 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 That totally. Cause I remember looking at sales back then going, what, you know, in meetings, people thinking, what's, what? Oh, it's the number one DVD player being sold. Okay. We're, you know, we're screwed. We missed the use case again. So with Saturn, we missed 3D. 3D, real-time 3D is coming. We missed it. We did not build an architecture that, um, and not like I was in the room making architecture decisions. So they, <laughs> I'll take myself out of that, did not build an architecture that really understood what was coming next. And with Dreamcast, Sony had that leg up of knowing that the movies were going in that format and, and built that. And then you, you combine Matrix DVD with a DVD player that plays games. Wow. And, and, a, and a solid system. Like they really, PS2s, there's a reason that's one of the top selling consoles of all time. It's a hell of a box with a lot of great content. The poor Dreamcast, it didn't stand a chance, did it? <laughs> it didn't. It didn't. It didn't. It, it might have if we were supported. Yeah. yeah. Right? If, if Bernie got what he was trying to do and the backing to do it, and they really trusted North America more. I truly believe we would have given them a better run for their money because because mm. the the box could do some amazing things, yeah. not as powerful, uh, you know. But we, guys, for us, look freaking awesome. It really I, uh, you so, know, gr- growing up, I always said Soul Calibur for the Dreamcast was one of the most beautiful games ever for its time. Absolutely, you know, absolutely, it could do a lot. So you um you ended up working with Microsoft, you know. Uh, and quite a few of the team were, you know, from Dreamcast were involved in Microsoft as well. What, what's the story there? What happened? Because didn't they have the um, Microsoft CE uh, logo on some of the Dreamcasts, I remember as well? Oh, yeah, yeah. I luckily got to skirt that. Um, that one, that one, you know, I think came back to bite the Dreamcast a little too because that, it was hard. If you were required to use that, I don't know if I should tell the full de- there was a title I saw in Japan that I was was struggling to hit their frame rate and they were blaming CE and I was like thank God I'm in first party uh, over here in North America and don't have that part of my deal in there uh, no you know not bashing Windows C but it definitely I think the attempt there was to line up with Microsoft and pull them into the business and get some additional technology and it didn't really pay off for Dreamcast but. Um, to answer your question, how did I end up at at, uh, at Xbox? So um, I left Sega uh, before Dreamcast shipped. It was not um, the best parting, right? Uh, you know, my team left, uh, shut down the the Geisworth team, went to Bernie and said, "So what's next?" And he said, "You know, well, 
you can stay and do a job. You're probably not going to be thrilled to go, or I can, you know, I can accelerate, you know, uh, your, your vesting and exit and make this a good, a good, nice package for you to live with. So I took uh, plan B and uh, got my wings and said, I'm out and I had no idea what I was going to do next. I um, took a small stint, went back to school mm-hmm. uh, and then um, realized I wanted to work. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I went on a series of interviews and one, I don't even remember what the company was for. It was bizarre. Um, it was some middleware thing. And they put me and a couple of the people going for the job in the same room and had us, even though we were interviewing for one slot, kind of competing, collaborating. It was a really, really weird experience. Um, and partway through this guy, uh, Mike Kawahara, turned to me and said, you know, hey, you seem like you actually know what you're doing in the industry. I don't think I want this gig. Do you want this gig? I'm like, I don't know. This is really weird. He's like, "Um, would you consider leaving the Bay Area? And I was like, at this point, yeah, it's hard to land a job in the industry and, you know, I want to get back in. He's like, well, there's there's a Microsoft hiring for Xbox. Um, I interviewed, not going to take the job. I can put you in touch with the hiring manager. You'd be a shoo-in for it. I was like... Yeah, man, put, put me in touch. And I'm a Barian, you know, native, no desire to live in Seattle. Had looked at Microsoft entering the console business, honestly, as a head scratcher. Like, but I, I also remember looking at Sony like that and then them kicking my ass. So luckily I had <laughs> that, that bit of uh, wisdom. And um, I said, yeah, you know, I'll reach out to the, to the hiring manager. I did, got an immediate ping back. Um, got flown up to Redmond, did an interview loop, was convinced I completely failed and was an idiot and they would never hire me. Because back then, that was when Microsoft put you to a whiteboard and put you through the ringer. Um, I don't think they do that in the interviews anymore, but engineering questions and riddles and problems and um, and they really tried to break you down um, mm-hmm. intentionally. And they did a good job of it. I didn't leave that night feeling really good about myself. I had done really well. <laughs> I just didn't feel good about myself. They offered me a job uh, and I left the Bay Area and went up to join Xbox. And so you've heard like that first chunk of my story. There's a lot of pain there. There's a lot of so close and so close to doing amazing things and and not having the support of the parent company. But by the time I had someone like Microsoft say, do you want to come work at HQ on a new console? How could I say no? Yeah, I didn't want to leave the Bay Area, but how could I say no? And so I just, just last Friday, got to hang out with everyone that launched. Well, not everyone, because a lot of them didn't make it COVID and, and, and such. But those that could make it, um, I'm going to call them out. Phil uh, funded, Mr. Spencer funded a, um, a 20th anniversary party mm. and like reached out. So there's that Easter egg that's on YouTube of... Uh, all of us that are that are part of the launch, there's like a launch credits for uh, the original Xbox. I don't know if you've seen it, but if your name is in that, which mine is, and in fairness, I joined in summer and they shipped in November, uh, November. So I was not a major part of the original Xbox and I do not want anyone listening to, t- to get that impression or that I think that I was. I, I joined when things were pretty baked and I helped you know a little bit get it out the door. Um, but I, I joined uh, in June of uh, 2001 uh, so I was in that credits and uh, they had a party for all of us and it was amazing. Um, 
everyone had to show their vaccination cards and and such but we got together and they had 16 player halo land set up and they had a cake that looked just like the original uh, xbox with the duke controller amazing um you know and uh, matt booty and kiki and bonnie and phil a lot of the people that are still there came by and said hi which was awesome Ed freeze uh, got up and talked um, it was really nice so uh yeah that was the second chunk of my career it was then okay now i i joined xbox um and, and got to be a part of the Xbox Live launch and the Xbox 360 launch. And it was a phenomenal group of people and great, great time. Well, kind of the legacy of the Xbox is is amazing. Even today, you know, it's it's up there with the latest generation as a kind of PlayStation Xbox and these consoles that really came from companies that um, previously didn't seem like they were they were kind of in that game. And yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's great that you kind of got into that area. Like, I, I was just wondering, where do you see the kind of future and console, uh, future of consoles and games? I'm, I'm pretty excited about them. As, you know, now that I'm at Intel and I'm uh, PC, 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 there was such a long period of, uh, you know, whatever they put out, I'm going to have something that's always better day one. And they really did an amazing job with direct storage and, and yeah, the NVMe part and the way that they delivered that functionality and, continue to look at how they can solve um, pain points to make the experience better for, for end users all the way back to shipping. I think after original Xbox, we started talking about thin clients and cloud and um, servers and how that would impact our world. And, you know, now they have uh, X cloud rolling out across uh, various services to the console and the PC and phone um, that concept was around Microsoft for a very, very long time, but it never was a replace. And so I've always been really skeptical and cynical of, uh, oh, cloud gaming is going to replace um, console gaming because there's something about the experience of sitting on your couch with a dedicated machine that really is built to do the one thing you love really, really, really well um, that's hard to top. Uh, and I say that as a person that thinks still, hey, my desktop stationary PC uh, experience is, is, again, the top of the top. And that's that's because I can put the baddest and best hardware in here. And the thing that people forget when they speculate about what's happening with consoles is, oh, well, you know, look at where they're at now. The delta between generations is minimal now. And, you know, is, isn't there a point where hardware is just good enough and can always deliver a great experience? And um the answer is no, <laughs> absolutely not. And why I can say that really clearly is game development, content creation is not stagnant. We have a, a unquenchable thirst for better content, better games, better graphics, more, 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 more. And even if we hit a point where the graphic GPU power is, is um, saturated and it's hard to differentiate with more uh, compute there or the CPU is, uh, we'll do something in physics or we'll do something in AI or we'll do something with scale that requires more compute. So I do think cloud is interesting and it's going to be additive to the overall gaming ecosystem. But I'm a firm believer in consoles being here for, for quite some time. I have all the current and uh, you know, generation. Uh, love it. I think it's phenomenal. I think what PS5 did with haptics on their controller is, is amazing. Uh, and it's it's a great place to continue driving innovation. Yeah. Well, Mark, I, uh, future oh, is bright. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. 
it's, it's, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on a, a roller coaster of an interview. Re- really good stuff, mate. <laughs> it, um, we'd love to get you back on to talk about the Xbox at some point. Let's do it. Yeah, it's, it's you know now some of those memories are a little fresher after uh, catching up with everybody. And, and uh, my wife has been cleaning out the attic and started snapping pictures of like face plates from the 360 and i'm like oh, that was rare i think that actually might be worth money and bringing back all the all the memories of all the all the stuff we got to, to do then uh, launching live on the original xbox and oh thank you yeah i'd love to come back and talk about xbox that'd be uh, that'd be a blast waiting on a tax return hopefully it ends up in your hands Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash Boost by Tax Day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC. Member SIPC. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. You know you got the most. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.